Well, please turn in your Bibles now to the book of Luke, chapter 9. We'll be looking at Luke 9, verses 23 through 27. This chapter is an important transition chapter in the Gospel of Luke uh, from Jesus' uh, general public ministry in the area of Galilee uh, to uh, a sort of extended ministry on the road to Jerusalem. At the end of this chapter, uh, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. He is going there to be crucified on the cross, and that's his purpose that he will continue on until he arrives at that point. And so as he approaches that time, there's a lot of big things that happen. We have in this chapter the feeding of the 5,000. We have uh, in this chapter Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ. The, the story of the transfiguration on the mountain happens in this chapter. Uh, and then here in the middle of this chapter, Jesus has a word for all people to consider as they think about following him. So before we read this, let's again pray and ask God to bless it. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We ask now that you will help us to hear and to understand and to believe and to obey. Holy Spirit, we cannot do these things on our own, so we ask that you will be moving among us and in us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Luke 9, 23 through 27. This is God's holy word. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, some things are natural, some things are not. It depends who you are. Some of you, I expect, are those sorts of people who you see numbers and math just happens. They just, they just fit together, natural. Others of you, that doesn't work for numbers, but maybe it's colors. You see colors and all of a sudden art happens and, and you can create beauty. Some of you, maybe it's neither one of those things. But, but, but usually, most of us have something that we'll sort of discover is, is a gifting, an area of gifting. It's a fit for us. And, and hopefully, we sort of, as we progress in life, we fall into those things and have opportunities to use those gifts and skills that God has given us. And that's a good part of God's design. But sometimes we also need to do something unnatural. And that's what we have in this passage. Jesus talks about something, maybe the thing that is most unnatural of all. And, and maybe as a test, I will ask this. How many of you woke up this morning and said to yourself, I would like to be crucified on a cross today? It's absurd. In fact, have you ever woken up and thought that or even had to reject that thought? It's so unnatural that you probably haven't. And yet this is the way Jesus challenges us. We must follow him. He says it requires 
a cross. And so as we hear his words, we need to be prepared. Everything inside us, our nature is going to say, don't do it. Don't follow. And yet Jesus says, follow me. Or to put it another way, he calls us to repent. He calls us to turn away from our natural direction and to go a different direction, to reject what is natural to us and to embrace what seems very unnatural. But as we do that, he also welcomes us into a sort of paradox that as we walk the way of the cross, we discover that on the other side of death, there is life. And on the other side of shame, there is glory. And so tonight, Jesus calls you to follow him and to repent of what is natural to do that. So we'll consider this tonight under three headings. How do we repent and follow Jesus as he instructs us here? First, you must repent with your desires. Repent with your desires. <clears throat> Jesus begins, verse 23, if anyone would come after me. He wants to know, what would you do? What do you wish? What do you want? What do you desire? Do you want to come? Verse 24, he uses the same word, a different topic. Whoever would save his life. What would you do? Would you like to save your life? Jesus presents these desires and gives the instructions. If you want to follow him, you must deny yourself. To get what you want, you must not get what you want. You hear how these two desires are presented against each other. Uh, it's, it's a reality of following Jesus Christ. Now, how does this work? Well, people are already following Jesus. There are already many people following him. Peter we'll use as an example because he is one who just recently confessed Jesus Christ in the previous passage. Why is Peter following Jesus? Well, he's following Jesus, probably the same reason many are, uh, because he thinks Jesus is his hope for salvation. He's the promised one that Israel was going to receive, the, the one who is going to be their Savior. So that's what Peter wants. That's a natural thing to want. It's natural to want to follow Jesus. And yet, Jesus speaks to Peter and to everyone else and says, I know that's not the only thing you want. You have more than one desire. There's something else that you want. And that is to save your life. You want to save yourself. So Jesus identifies this desire, and it is such a central desire that Jesus can simply command not deny that particular de desire, but he just says you have to deny yourself. Jesus is going to identify this desire as something at the very core of who you are. Uh, it's not the most flattering picture of you. Jesus thinks that fundamentally you love you. You care about you. That's what you really want. But it makes sense. It makes sense if we go all the way back to the original story in Genesis of desires gone wrong. Do you remember what happened when the woman was tempted at the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
there's the introduction of that desire. I want something that will benefit me. That's the desire. And after that first sin, that has been in the heart of humanity ever since. It is one of Satan's strongest attacks against us. Maybe you remember the story in the book of Job. The righteous man Job is going to be tempted by the devil. And there are two rounds of temptation. In the first one, uh, he is attacked in that his possessions are destroyed. Even his children are killed. And yet he will not forsake God. And so Satan comes back to God and God points out that Job is still a faithful servant. And Satan says, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. If you let me touch him, I'll get him. And that's how Satan will challenge you as well. He knows that we love ourselves. And so Jesus calls us to do this most unnatural thing, to follow him and to deny ourselves. And yet... As he develops these thoughts, he continues to walk us into a paradox. We must deny ourselves. We must not be trying to save ourselves. And yet, what do we accomplish if we do this? Jesus says, verse 24, If you want to save your life, then you lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. So are you supposed to want to save your life or not? Salvation is the goal. Your life itself is not the enemy. It is good to want to be saved. But that that little modifier is important. For my sake. We're turning away from that selfish, self-preservation desire to the desire to be saved by Jesus. And we're looking for our desires not to be destroyed. We don't want our desires to be eradicated, but we want them to be purified and to be made new. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. He is calling us to experience, on the one hand, a destruction, the the destruction of that selfishness, but also a newness of life. So to follow Christ, you must repent with your desires. Now, what does this look like practically? How do you obey this command? Well, the best uh, single word that I can give you in, in trying to obey this command is pray. Pray. Because your desires are way deep down in there. And you're going to have trouble changing them yourself. I like what our catechism says about prayer. It says prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. And the catechism teaches us we should be offering good desires to God according to his will. I suggest you also offer him the bad ones. Lift them up to him and say, I need help with these desires. Consider what scripture says. For example, Jeremiah 17 Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't climb down in there by yourself and try to fix it and repair it. Now the question has an answer. The next verse, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You need to go into your heart. You need to go into your desires, but you need to go in the power of the Lord, seeking His grace. So pray to Him. Ask Him to work in your desires, to change them and to purify them. And then, as as we read this morning in the Scripture reading, it's that simple pattern of putting off and putting on. You need to work on starving the old selfish desires and building up the good desires, feeding what is right. 
Usually the way that we try to save our life, the way that we feed that sinful desire is not by some, some very uh, huge thing, but it's, it's a very little thing where we prefer ourselves in some way. I'm going to prefer myself with, with spending a little bit more money on myself than maybe I need to. I'll, I'll prefer myself by eating just a little bit more of what I want instead of what I think I ought to. Or I'll, I'll decide what I'm going to wear because, after all, it's, it's me. Shouldn't I be taking care of myself? It's all sorts of little things where we want to feed our desires. If you, if you need a, a more comprehensive list of the desires uh, that we feed ourselves with to, 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 to give this selfish desire, uh, watch TV for 15 minutes. You'll know what they all are, right? Isn't that how the ads work? They, they point out all those desires that you either have or they want to create in you, and it's all going to, to turn toward selfishness so that you can save yourself. I'm sure there's some advertising that's not like that. I don't mean every ad ever, but, but that's the general idea. Get your desires focused where you'll spend your money and it will be for you. So you need to starve those desires and then you need to be feeding the good desires. Instead of spending all your time with the advertisers in the world, spend time with people who will encourage you to want the right things. I expect many of those people are in this room right here. These are the people you need to spend time with in order to feed the good desires, the people who will encourage you that following Jesus is the right thing to do instead of following all the ways of the world. You need the influences in your life to be people who want to follow Jesus Christ. So starve the selfish desires, feed the good desires, but again, all through it, pray, because this is going to the bottom of who you are, and only God will turn this around. Repent with your desires. Next, repent with your decisions. Repent with your decisions. <coughs> Verse 23, Jesus says, Take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily. Again, this unnatural command. The cross was an instrument for torture followed by death. Uh, but it was more than just the death itself. Often criminals would have to carry their cross or a part of their cross to the place of execution, uh, there was an intentional shame built into it because their message was, was being communicated to the world. This person does not belong in this society. This person needs to be eliminated. There is no place for a person like this. Don't be this kind of person. Very strong message. As a person takes up a cross and carries it, to the place of death. Again, nobody chooses to do that. No, no, nobody just, just gets up and says, I'm going to join that crowd on my way to death. And yet Jesus says this is the image that you need. Of course, Jesus was preparing literally to do this. He was on his way to carry a physical cross, which he would die on, a physical death. But he told us to do it every day. So what does this mean? How do we obey this command? To answer that, I want us to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter, I think as, as you read his letters, you can sometimes hear 
him meditating on things that Jesus told him while he was alive. And, and he's, he's had a few decades, perhaps. I don't know exactly how long it was before he wrote the letter, but he's had some time uh, to let it sit and to think. And so he gives instruction that's very helpful in understanding Christ's commands. And I think that happens here. First Peter 2, beginning at verse 21. Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter is going to talk about the death of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about it in two ways. Something Jesus did for you and something that is an example. That is, Jesus accomplished something on your behalf. This isn't something you're going to repeat or imitate. It's, it was done on your behalf. But also, as you look at that, you see an example. So first, Jesus, he, Peter will talk especially about how Jesus did something for us. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is what Jesus did for you, for, for his people. He took our sins in his body, and when he died, he paid the penalty for that sin. And so when we think about our salvation, we never think about the quality of our following as what saves us. And say, as, as long as I'm following well enough, then, then it must be accomplished. No, what dealt with all my sin and all the, the things that kept me away from God is something Jesus did 2,000 years ago at the cross. And I trust in him that he has accomplished that. And as I seek to follow him, I am seeking to work out what he has done. As, as the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We are working this out and following his example. And that's the next part of verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This, I believe, is what it means to take up your cross daily. This is how you follow the command and the example. You die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, you never start to think this is all in your own power. Peter immediately says, by his wounds you have been healed. He returns to to grounding it in what Jesus Christ has done, but he gives you this principle. You will die physically only once, but dying to sin is something that you must do every day, and it will not be natural. It's not something, again, you're just going to wake up in the morning and automatically think, I need to die to sin today. It's something that requires training and a decision. You can wake up in the morning and say, this, today, this is what I'm going to do. Today, I'm going to carry the cross. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to tell myself, no, and do what is right. Now, if you do this, the world is going to start screaming at you. What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. This isn't right. In fact, they'll, they'll say, uh, this is dishonest. This, it's inauthentic. This is not who you really are. And, and you're a hypocrite because cause you're going against your own heart. And it can sound good at first. I don't want to be a hypocrite. That, that's not good. But Jesus said, take up your cross daily. Worrying about whether I'm a hypocrite or not is not, is not a reason to, to disobey Jesus' command. The, the simple thing Jesus wants you to do is to obey. And Jesus isn't too worried about your heart 
as a selfish part of you. He's okay with getting rid of that. He's okay with denying that. He wants you to follow him. The world will say other things. The world will say, well, you can't love other people if you don't love yourself. So, you know, you need to make sure you're getting, getting yourself your, your due. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. It's interesting, Colossians warns us about the philosophy of the world. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Sometimes to apply that verse, you have to read, Lots of books about philosophy and apologetics and so on. Sometimes to apply that verse, all you have to do is say, no, I won't sin. I'm going to obey. Sometimes it's very simple. It's just old-fashioned obedience. So how do you do it? How How do you make this practical? We have a book of stories at home that we read with our boys about frog and toad. Maybe some of you know about frog and toad. Good friends, very different personalities, but do all sorts of things together. One day, frog and toad make cookies. And frog and toad start to eat these cookies, and they're very good cookies. And so they eat them, and then they eat some more. And and toad says to frog, we must stop eating. And frog says, yes, we need willpower. And toad says, what's willpower? And, and Frog says, willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do. It's about right. We need willpower. Now, if you go back to point one, you say, well, we're repenting with our desires, so we're supposed to want to do it, but I'm going to assume you haven't finished that yet, and so this point still applies. You're going to want things, and you shouldn't just say, well, I've got to, I'll just wait till my desires are in order, and then I'll do the right thing. No, right now, today, You say, I'm going to do the right thing. Even if I really want to do the wrong thing, I will do what's right. Again, it can apply in very little things. As you you deal with the matters of what you wear and how you spend your money and what you eat and so on, it also comes into play in much bigger things. And if you struggle with the little things, you you might pause and ask yourself, how am I going to be obedient in the big things if I'm not willing to do it in the little things? When it comes time for me to make the hard decisions, to, to consider the cost. What will I do? What about my spiritual disciplines? Do I wake up and read the Bible if my heart's in the right place and I feel like reading the Bible? Or do I have some sense that God has obligated me to sit under his word whether I feel like it or not? When I wake up, it can be when you go to bed too. You can apply this all day long. Do I, do I think to myself, Do I feel like praying or not? And make a decision whether I'm going to pray or do I say, no, I I am God's child. I'm going to speak to him. I'm going to talk to him about what's going on. How do you make decisions about who you spend time with, whether you go to church, um, what, what you do with spare time for entertainment, whether or not you are going to serve somebody else or pass by? the opportunity. Again, it's not always very complicated. It's just good old-fashioned willpower. Do the right thing. Of course, I don't want you to take that and run with it in a 
apart from God, since this is all, as we read in First Peter, it's all grounded in Christ and His power and what He has done. But we have the responsibility to make a decision and to do what is right. Repent with your decisions. Take up your cross and follow Him. Do you repent with your desires? Repent with your decisions? Finally, Jesus teaches you to repent with your direction. Repent with your direction. This passage starts in our hearts. What do you want? It talks about our decisions. What are you going to do? But, but the passage does not end. Jesus does not stop until he is talking to you about a vision of the kingdom of God. And that's a very important part of what Jesus is calling you to do. Listen to how he finishes. Go to verse 25. Jesus says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There's, there's the standard Jesus wants to set. How high should your expectations be? This is going to be something better than the entire world. All, all the riches and the fame and the glory and the whatever it else is that you're interested in this world, Jesus is going to want you to push past all that to something that's even better. And so he takes you to judgment day itself. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's what's significant. Not the glory of uh, this year or this decade or this lifetime. The glory of God himself when he returns. And so Jesus says, do not be ashamed of him in this life. Or else, you, or else you will be found in shame at the last day. It's, it's important to notice here <clears throat> that he includes his words in this command. It's a helpful, helpful um, little note when he says, ashamed of me and my words, because, of course, as we think about following him, it's not identical to Peter and company that were on the road. For them to follow him, they could look at a, a man standing there, and he's going to walk this way or that way, and they can walk after him or not. We don't do that. We don't have a, a physical following that we do. So Jesus tells us exactly what it means to follow him, even after he is not physically present. It means doing things according to his words, according to what is in Scripture. And Jesus warns us about shame. Very relevant with that image of the cross in mind. Because if you take up your cross daily, you'll get your share of shame in this life. You might avoid uh, that shame by rejecting Jesus, but then your shame will come at the last day. <coughs> so Jesus warns you to look to that. But not only that, Jesus promises those who are listening in that moment, verse 27, he said, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He wants you to think about the last day, but those people who are listening, he says, I'm not just going to motivate you with, with your ability to imagine the judgment day. I'm going to give you a vision in this life to make you want to follow me. Now, what did that promise mean and how, how was it fulfilled? I think, uh, and many commentators agree with this, that probably the transfiguration in the next passage was a, a first fulfillment of this promise that when he took three disciples up on the mountain and they saw him in his glory, even before he had gone to the cross and ascended into heaven, they saw what Jesus was promising, this vision of the kingdom of God. 
But I, I don't think we have to stop there as we think about the fulfillment of this promise. Because not only those three, but many disciples saw many other things. Think of what they saw in their lifetimes. They saw Jesus crucified, risen, ascended. They were there at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out. They, they heard the people speaking in all the different languages. They saw the conversion of people who had been lost and not following, who then turned to follow Jesus Christ. They saw the establishment then of, of the early church, now constituted under Jesus Christ. And they saw the gospel go out to all the nations. And they, they saw that boundary between Jew and Gentile broken down as, he, as Jesus reconstituted God's people with anyone from any nation who would trust in him and follow him. They saw extraordinary things. They saw the kingdom of God advance. And I think that vision was intended to keep them going. And in that sense, I think that this promise is for us too. I think that we are asked to look and to see the kingdom of God and to be motivated by that. Because we still see the work of the Spirit in the world today. We still see lives being transformed and churches being born and the Word of God going around this world. And so think about your direction in life, your vision. Where are you going? It's, it's graduation season. The so graduates get this all the time. What's next? You know, what, what do you have lined up in terms of your job or your career? And Of course, it's not just graduates. We all want to know. Do you have a good plan? Do you have a good trajectory? Have you saved up enough for retirement? What are you going to do in retirement? How, have, you, have you lined it all out? What's your vision? What's your direction? What if you answered that question saying, well, my direction is I'm, I am aiming straight for heaven. And as I go, all I want to do is see God's kingdom along the way. That's my direction in life. I am, I'm, I'm going to be with my Savior. I'm, he's, he's going to to be proud of me on Judgment Day. He's going to say, I, he, this was one of my followers, but in the meantime, as I am still in this life, here's what I'm excited about. I am looking around for ways and opportunities that I can see the kingdom of God. And that's what I want to see. And that's what I want to make my life meaningful. And that's why every single day when I get up, I want to discipline myself. I want, I want to deny myself. I want to take up a cross because there's something big out there. There's something exciting and extraordinary that I want be looking at and moving toward. That's my direction in life. What's your direction? Where are you going? What are you pointed at? Jesus invites you to see nothing less than the kingdom of God. And it won't come naturally. It's not natural. It's, it's something that will require you to repent, to turn. In, in Hosea 14, we're instructed to take words with us and return to the Lord. I think that's something that this passage especially is helpful to do. Is take this passage, maybe memorize it, use it as a regular meditation. Test your hearts before God. Ask Him to show you your desires, to help you think about your decisions, to point you in the right direction. And then step forward and follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, we do want to follow you. We confess that's not the only desire in our hearts. We have that other desire that still lingers on, the desire to save ourselves. Forgive us for that. 
And Lord, help us. Help us to have new and right desires. Lord, even when our desires are failing, help us to make the right decisions and to do the right things. And Lord, we pray you'll renew our vision. We pray you'll help us to look up beyond uh, the, the things of this life that discourage us as, as real as they are as a part of our life. Help us to nevertheless see something bigger. Help us to look for the kingdom of God. And Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes to see it. We know this is not something we do on our own. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your work. And Jesus, we pray this in your name, depending on you. Amen.